Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. We're discussing the ten spherot, the ten emanations from Hashem, the world of Atzillus, the world of emanation, and why the Kabbalists refer to the ten illuminations as orot, as light, light, or. Why or? Um, why the metaphor of or? Of course, it's only a metaphor. It's not, we're not discussing, we're not talking about anything physical. There's no physical light. But it's a metaphor that helps us understand the idea of emanation, the world of emanation. That just like the light is a reflection from the source, so too the ten sefirot, the ten divine emanations, are a reflection from Hashem. Although he described earlier that although Hashem is so distant, is so remote from the highest level, what's the highest level of the world of emanation? Chachma datzilas, wisdom, divine wisdom, the creative, creative energy of Hashem. So Hashem is totally beyond that. And he gave the analogy, he says, you know, our whole universe is so tiny. Imagine, just imagine taking a drop of the ocean out of the ocean. Now, imagine the king of the drop, king of the hill, the top of the drop, the tip of the drop, the highest level of the drop in comparison to the bottom, now, to the ocean. The king of the hill, the king of this drop, or the top of the drop, is the same as the bottom of the drop. It means nothing. It's insignificant. There's no difference between the two. What difference is there? It's like the, in comparison to the billions of sound waves that are beyond, beyond what's audible to a human being, the highest level that's audible to a human being, the shriek, is the same as, as a whisper. It's insignificant. It's all the way at the bottom. They're both, they're both the same. Or in comparison to the, to the uh, wavelength, you know, the, the wavelength that we're able to see that's visible to us, so the highest level, the lowest level, is all the same. So what by us is the king of the hill, by us, we consider spirituality, intellect. The whole human experience is basically divided, the whole linear universe, what we call, the Kabbalists call Seder Hishtalshalus, is divided into five levels. Action, the world of action, the person of action, the world of speech, the world of thought, the world of emotion, and the world of love, emotion, and the world of philosophy, of intellect, and the spiritual world, creative world, the intuitive world. That's the entire universe. So what by us is considered the king of the hill, the highest level, the level of creativity, the level of intuition, the person of the mind, the person of meditation. The highest level in comparison to the levels that are beyond the billions and trillions of levels that are beyond creativity, spirituality, and philosophy, and action is all the same. There's no difference. And that's why to God, the Pasuk says, Kulam Asisa. To God, wisdom is just a tool. It doesn't say, Kulam Asisa Bachachma. You made everything with wisdom. No, with wisdom you created everything. Wisdom is just a tool. 
Because wisdom is like action. So what by us is considered the king of the hill, the top, the tip, the highest. And with, by us is such a huge difference between action, the world of action and the world of emotion, the world of philosophy, the world of spirituality, the world of religion. There's a huge difference. You can't even compare the two. Right? You're not going to say, I, I can grab a concept with my fingers. You can't grab a concept with your fingers. Action and intellect and philosophy have no connection. The world of philosophy is so much greater than the world of action. So you can't connect, you can't associate, relate action to philosophy. That's the distance between the two. Even though it's just five degrees of separation. So imagine in comparison to Hashem, imagine in comparison to the levels that are beyond, the billions of levels that are beyond the visible universe, the known universe, the conscious universe. Action and wisdom and creativity and spirituality and philosophy is all the same. There is no difference. So from that point of view, it's, it's, it's a real equalizer. To God, it's a real equalizer. It's all the same. Just like you can't grab God with your hands, you can't grab God with your mind. You can't wrap your mind around God. You can't grab God through religion, through spirituality, through emotion. It's simply too, too limited. You can't grab God with it or connect with God. So to Hashem, just like action doesn't touch Him, philosophy doesn't touch Him, meditation, religion, spirituality, religiosity, intensity, higher levels of consciousness, mind-blowing experiences. To God, it's all meaningless. Because He's so beyond it. And that's why God is a true egalitarian, <laughs> democrat. There's no difference. The greatest, the smallest, it's all the same. What difference? By us, the king of the hill is to God the same as the bottom of the hill. There's no difference. It's like the top, the top of the drop or the, or the bottom of the drop. In comparison to the ocean, what difference is it? It's nothing. The whole hierarchy that we have, the hierarchy and the different levels, it's only from, from our very limited point of view because we live in this bubble. We live in the drop. That's our whole universe. We don't see the bigger picture. We can't see the bigger picture. We don't see the ocean. But in comparison to the ocean that contains the drop, where, where's the drop? I can't even find the drop. And does it make a difference the top of the drop, the bottom of the drop? It, 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 it's nothing. It's insignificant. It's irrelevant. So it truly equalizes the greatest to the smallest. The top and the bottom. It's all the same. And that's from the point of view of the ocean, which we learned at the end of the last chapter in, in the Haggah, in the uh, note, that ultimately the ocean is made up of a whole bunch of drops. So yes, the drop of the ocean is insignificant in comparison to the ocean. But ultimately the ocean is ultimately made up of drops. There's nothing in the ocean other than the drops. But then there's a much higher level where the whole is greater than the sum total of its parts. The world of Adam Kadman in the language of Kabbalah. Primordial, primordial man, Adam, Adam who represents the whole, where the whole is greater than the sum total of its parts. Where it's not just a composite of, like the ocean is a composite of many drops. It's not a composite of many drops. The whole, it's a whole different 
vibrant entity in which there are no points. All the points are interrelated, interconnected. It's a whole different perspective from that point of view. There are no drops. There are no individual parts, components. It's all one dynamic entity, all interrelated, interconnected, one whole, one united entity. And from that point of view, there surely is no difference in the top and the bottom. And, and we see that reflected within every Adam, within every human being. If we don't know where's the beginning and where's the end. In many respects, the bottom is the head and the, 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 the head is the, is the bottom. The brain wants to go study, wants to go to the library. The brain is helpless. Who is the head? Who is the leader? The foot. The foot becomes the head. The only one who can take you where you need to go, where you want to go, is the foot. The head is totally dependent on the foot. So who's the head? Who's the foot? Who's on top? Who's on bottom? It's, it's totally upside down. Because it's, everything is interrelated, interconnected. There's no head, there's no top, there's no bottom. It's all one dynamic, vibrant entity. From that perspective, from that point of view, it truly equalizes all of reality. There's no top, there's no bottom. It's all the same. It evokes the same response. Or it doesn't. Just like action doesn't touch God. So meditation and reflection and philosophy and, and intensity and religiosity and spirituality and it's, it's like it means nothing. It doesn't touch, it doesn't evoke. Because God is so remote, God is so transcendent, God is so distant. God is so beyond billions and trillions of levels beyond our whole known universe. So even the divine creative ability, Chachmah Da'atzilis, wisdom of the world of emanation, the highest level of Ishtalshlis, the beginning of the whole known universe, even that so distant and so remote, so remote from God. And yet, we say that it's a divine attribute. It's God's wisdom. And God and His wisdom are one. And God and His wisdom are inseparable. And we talk of God's wisdom, we, don't, we talk of God. God reflects through His wisdom. God is expressing Himself through His wisdom. And we talk of God's love. Even though God is so far beyond love and so far beyond any concept and any definition, any description that it's mystical to us it makes it's inexplicable to us how can we talk about God's love how can we talk about God's wisdom how can we talk about God and his wisdom are so, so distant so apart and yet God chose to manifest himself in some mysterious miraculous mystical way that we don't understand we just take accept it on faith that God chose to manifest himself and to express himself, and to concentrate himself, and to reveal himself through the ten attributes, divine attributes. But they are divine attributes. They are godly. They are like light. That's a reflection from the source. Just like light reflects the sun, so too the divine attributes, the wisdom of the world of emanation reflects God. They're godly attributes. They're divine attributes. The, the love of Hashem, divine love, is, is a godly attribute. It's a, whole, it's, it's a holy attribute. It's a divine attribute. It's God's love. 
God and his love is inseparable. God and his awareness and his knowledge, his divine providence is inseparable. And God's royalty, all of the ten attributes, God and his speech, they're all inseparable. This is the great mystery of the ten spherot, which doesn't make sense to us. But we accept it in faith. God has chosen to, ex- to express himself through these divine attributes. And they become not like a tool in the hands of God, like an axe in the hand of the builder. The axe and the builder are two separate entities. But they become like a body to the soul. The body becomes inseparable to the soul. Where does the soul end? Where does the body begin? The body is a, is a reflection of the soul. The body is egoless. The body is, gets out of the way. It's just the soul. The soul is totally manifest through the body. There's nothing but the soul. And the soul is totally transparent through the body. So too, the ten divine attributes become like a body to God. To God. And Hashem reveals Himself through the divine attributes. So that's why the Kabbalists use the analogy of light because light reflects the source. So the ten divine attributes, although on their own, they're almost like a creation, something from nothing, because God is so distant from any of these attributes, any of these definitions, any of these concepts. But in some miraculous, mystical way, Hashem emanates these attributes from Himself and they become transparent and God manifests Himself and concentrates Himself and reveals Himself and conducts our world through these ten attributes. So they are godly attributes. It's not like the angels. Angels are created beings. Souls are created beings. The the ten divine attributes are godly. They're Hashem. When we say the different names in the Torah, every name reflects another attribute. We're talking about the way Hashem manifests Himself through a divine attribute. Elohim is the attribute of strength. Kale is the attribute of love. Hashem, Yudke Vavke, is the attribute of mercy, of compassion. Tzvakos is the attribute of netzach, of overcoming the enemy and overcoming obstacles, opposition. And you have the... Um, you have Shakai is the attribute of Yisoyed, of connection. And you have... Adnai is the attribute of royalty. So every, every sphira, every divine attribute has a specific name. And they're God's names, they're holy names. They're Hashem's names. Because it's, we're not talking about love, we're not worshipping love. There's all, the, all there is is Hashem, all there is is God. God and His love, and God and His, all of His attributes and His knowledge are, as Maimonides says, are inseparable, are absolutely one and united. So we're talking about God. We're talking to God. We're not talking to there's God and then there's love, His attribute of love. God and His attribute of love are one and inseparable in some mystical, inexplicable way. And that's the analogy of light. Light reflects its source. Just like the light of the sun reflects the sun. You look at the light, you have an idea what the source is. It reflects the source. The soul is an energy and that's why the reflection of the soul, when the soul makes contact with your body, your body comes alive. It gives life. Again, the expression of the soul is a reflection. The light of the soul is a reflection of what the soul is. The soul is a piece of life. Its reflection, its light, gives life, gives life to the body. The sun is a luminary, is a ball of energy. 
the light also gives off light and gives off energy. So the light is a reflection of the source. So too Hashem, His divine attributes are a reflection of, of Him. And then He said, in addition, that the analogy of light also helps us explain the absolute unity of the divine attributes with God. Because just like light, if there's light, if the sun, you can't give what you don't have, if the sun gives off light, surely the sun has light. But yet, when the light is within the sun, you can't even find the light. There is no light. All there is is the sun. There's nothing else. When does the Torah call light? The Torah only calls light when it was day. It says, when Hashem, Hashem called the day light. In other words, only when the light left the sun and the light illuminated the world around it, outside of the sun, then you can call it by its Hebrew name, you can call it light. But when the light is within the sun, you can't call it light. There is no light. All there is is the sun. The light is there. If the light shines outside the sun, surely there's light within the sun. When the light is within the sun, it's even stronger than it is outside of the sun. Nevertheless, when the light is in the sun, although the whole essence of the sun, the sun, the Torah calls the sun the luminary, the whole essence of the sun is that its whole purpose is to give light. So therefore the light is significant. The fact that the sun gives off light, the light is a very significant part of the sun. It's a true reflection of the sun. It's a true reflection of the essence of the sun, which is to give off light. Nevertheless, before the light leaves the sun, the orb, and actually illuminates the world outside of the sun, when the light is within the sun, it's not called light. The sun doesn't need any illumination. The light doesn't add anything to the sun. All there is is the sun. And the sun's ability, the sun's potential and ability to give off light. So the light is there, but it's not there. It's completely united within its source. That all there is is its source. There's, absolute, there's only one entity, and that is the sun. It's not like the sun is two entities. There's the sun and there's light. The, light. the sun contains within it light. No. All there is is the sun. But the light is there, but it's not there. It's there, but I can't even call it by its name. I can't even find it. It's there, but it's insignificant. It has, it, it's there, but it's totally united with its source. That all there is is the light. The light is not a separate entity. The whole being of the light is nothing other than the sun's ability to give off light. So all there is is the sun and its ability to give off light. So all there is is the sun. There's nothing else. It's only when the light travels outside of the sun and, it's, and this light leaves the sun that suddenly the light acquires a name. It becomes an entity. I have the sun and I have light with its own properties, with its own entity. Although it's a dependent being, it's a totally dependent being, this light cannot exist for a moment without the source, but it's, it's, a, it's an entity that's totally dependent on its source, but it's an entity. It has its own properties, it has a name of its own. So it's only then that the light, you can call the light by its name. You can call it light. But when the light is within the source, when it's absorbed within the source, all there is is the source. There's nothing else. There's no separate entity. There's no separation. It's not even like the child is in the mother's womb. The child in the mother's womb, you have that mother and you have the child. 
It's a separate entity. It's within the mother, but it's a separate entity. And the proof is, later on the child is born and the child doesn't, doesn't need the mother. Some children need the, doesn't need the mother. You know, you cut the umbilical cord. With the light, when the light leaves the sun, the light doesn't leave, can never leave the sun. The light can never disconnect itself from the sun, not even for a split second. The light has no independent reality. The moment the light is disconnected from the source, you, there's no light. If you can't see the sun, you can't see the light. When the electricity, the current is cut off from the generator, there's no electricity. You can't exist. You can't battle the electricity. You can't battle the light and separate it from its source. It has no independent entity. Its entire existence is dependent on being connected to the source. The moment it disconnects from the source, it ceases to exist. But nevertheless, you can call it by a name. It has certain properties. But while it's within the source, it's absorbed within the source, it's inseparable from the source. There's nothing else but the source. You can't even call it by its name. You can't find it. There is no light that you can call and identify. Oh, here is the sun, and this is the light within the sun. You look in the sun, all there is is the sun. And the sun's ability to emit light. So the light is there, and even in a stronger form than when it leaves the sun, it has to be. You can't give, you don't have, if the, light, the sun could give off light, truly the sun has light. But it's inseparable from the source. All there is is the source. The source and its ability to give off light. So this is the analogy of the ten spherot, the ten godly illuminations. That although the ten godly illuminations are a reflection of Hashem, Nevertheless, when they are within the source, there is nothing but the source. You can't even call it by its name. The only difference between the light and the sun and Hashem and His ten divine Sfirot is that the Sfirot never leave the source because God is everywhere. So the ten Sfirot are always within the source. So from God's point of view, relative to God, you can't even call the ten spherot by its name. There are no spherot. All there is is God. All the ten spherot are united. They're inseparable from God. They're totally united within God. And all there is is God. It's only relative to us. When God creates the world with the substance of creation of the ten spherot, they are the tools which God creates the world. Wisdom and love compassion, all the ten sfirah, then you can call it by a name. Then we can call the sfirah the sfirah of wisdom, the sfirah of understanding, of knowledge, awareness, of love, of strength, of compassion, etc. So it's only a relative to us. But relative to God, the sfirah are totally, absolutely united within the source, totally, absolutely united within God. And that's why the Kabbalists use the analogy, the metaphor of light. It helps us understand that, A, the divine spherot are a reflection. They're godly. They're godly attributes. Although God transcends all of these attributes, but nevertheless, they are a reflection of God. They emanate from God. They are inseparable from God. They are divine attributes. The divine attribute of love. God's infinite love. God's infinite wisdom. And yet, at the same time, it also helps us understand the total unity of the light, the attributes with their source, with God. 
as Maimonides says, that the knower and the known and, and what's known is all one, absolutely one, inseparable. It's not the components made up of different parts, but they're actually absolutely one and inseparable. You said that when the light leaves the sun, if, there's no, if the connection from the sun is, is broken, it ceases to exist. But if light comes from a distant star, and as after it leaves the star, and the, and, the, and, the, and the star implodes and becomes a black hole, we still see that light that's sent off, even though that light, even though that star collapsed and disappeared. So how can that be if, 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 the, if it's now disconnected from its original source? Time. Exactly, time. Well, what you, what you, in other words, you're saying when you see a star, the star is not there anymore, but you see the star. You never see a light without the star. I see the light that the star sent me. Yeah, but you see a star. A star that no longer exists. I don't, see the, I don't see the star. I actually see the light the star sent me. You can't see one without the other. When you see the light, you see the star. You're seeing something that, that happened a long time ago. But, but you see, you never see a light without its source. You can't see light without seeing the sun. What you're seeing is, the visual image that you're seeing is, you're seeing the star. Because you can't see the star with the light without the star, but because of time, you're, you're just see you're just seeing it much later. The image that you're seeing is you never see an image of a light without seeing the star. What you see? Why do you see the star? Because because the star sent me the light of it. Yes, and that but and that's the, that image, the light emanating from the star. You can't have the, that is the image. There's no other image. And you're, and you're seeing the image of the light because of time. It takes time. It takes, yes. takes time to travel. But the image will always be the light and the star. You can't have one without the other. That will always be the image. Rabbi, earlier you said something about the feet and the brain. So I was thinking, isn't it like, well, things have anything in the heart too, but if your brain doesn't want you to either walk the horse or to go home, so then my feet wouldn't do it. Starts with the brain. You know, listen, uh, w w no one is suggesting that you should walk with your feet on the gr your head on the ground and your feet up. There are many many societies that act that way, and what happens is you get dizzy and you collapse. You know, the head the head is a head and the foot is a foot. There is a hierarchy. You have to respect that hierarchy. But on the other hand, the head has to realize that we don't know who is really the head and who is really the foot because we're all connected, we're all indispensable and every single person in a certain sense is a head and everyone else is a foot in comparison to that person it's because everyone is unique and, and, and what that person brings to the table is unique and in that sense that person is superior and everyone else is, is, is their foot so this is a true respect this is the healthy respect that the Torah teaches us to respect every person. Why in Judaism you have a true egalitarianism, true respect for every individual. You don't have this corrupt culture of elitism where the intellectually elite, pseudo-intellectuals, pseudo legends in their own mind, believe that the masses are too dumb to really know what's good for them and that the elite will enlighten them and you know there's a health there's a tremendous disrespect for people in the name of the, the democracy you have actually a disdain for people a disdain for the majority a disdain for the average person the average intelligence while in Judaism it's just the opposite 
that Judaism has a healthy respect for the smallest person, for every individual. So ironically, paradoxically, it's, it's Judaism, especially the Hasidic teachings, that really democratized and really believes in egalitarianism, which is why there was so much opposition to Hasidism. The real reason for the opposition for the Hasidism is because it destroyed that whole artificial hierarchy with the pseudo-elite, pseudo-intellectuals of the elite who had the power and control of the whole community and they looked down at the average person and the simple person. And you see it today, today's society, nothing changed. The arrogance of the elitist who they know better and although they know they have no majority, the majority is not with them, they don't care. They just know better. They're just superior. Everyone else is just too dumb to realize the insights and the deep truths that they know. And they're going to impose their lifestyle and their way of life on the, on, the, on the innocent majority. So they actually have a disdain for people. They have a disdain for the majority. And that's why they are going from failure to failure. They're losing every single election and they don't get it. Why they're shrinking. <laughs> why they're becoming more and more uh, uh, less and less popular. Because they're so, so arrogant. Their disdain for people and their disdain for the average people. You see how the intellectual elite talk about 90% of the country, <laughs> the two bastions of uh, you know, the, the East Coast and the West, East Coast. You see how they talk with such disdain about the average American. You know, this, is, this is elitism. This is, they don't really believe in democracy. They really believe that 90% of the people are just too dumb to really know what's going on and they're going to control the They're going to control everything. Judaism has the exact opposite view. Judaism really believes in the simplest person. Judaism believes that the simplest person has a lot more wisdom than a lot of these pseudo-intellectuals and calling themselves enlightened people actually and darkened would be a better word. Because they're so off. Their instincts are so off. They're so wrong about every major issue. It's, it's frightening. It's shocking. Judaism believes there's a healthy respect in, in the individual, in the smallest person. Because this comes from this, this point of view, from the godly point of view, divine point of view. Divine point of view, the greatest and the smallest are truly the same. So there's no room for intellectual arrogance. Because intellect doesn't cut it. Reality is much deeper than just the intellect. And sometimes the simplest person in his instinct is more in touch with the simplest truths of life then all these great intellectuals, ivory tower intellectuals who are so disconnected, are so clueless, it's just mind-boggling. So the Hasidic movement is a truly democratic movement, a truly egalitarian movement that really believes in the simplest Jew. The Bashamta believed in the simplest Jew. That the simplest Jew had such greatness and such wisdom and such depth and such beauty and such treasures that he dedicated his life to mine these treasures. And it really took the intellectual off his high horse, his arrogant high horse, ivory tower, arrogant high horse, and says, you know, opened his eyes to his own truth. That there's a much deeper truth, a much deeper reality that's way beyond, way beyond your logical, conceptual frame of reference. You can't wrap your mind around it, just like you can't grab it with your hands. You can't wrap your mind. It's so, something so deep and profound and humbling. Moshe was the most humble person that lived. The greatest encounter with Hashem. The most direct encounter with Hashem. And he was the most humble person that lived. He respected every Jew, the simplest Jew. 
He was humbled by the simple That's a genuine Jewish response. That's a real Democrat, a real egalitarian response. That's where we don't know who's, who's in the beginning, who's on top, and who's on bottom. It's like a circle. Where's the beginning? Where's the top? Where's the bottom? Everyone is a top. Because everyone is unique. Everyone contributes something. And what this person contributes, he is the head and everyone else is his foot. So we're all interrelated, interconnected. You have a quick question. I understand what you're saying. Uh, but is the overview of part of the chapter of the lesson tonight, is the overview that, that compared to God, everything else is kind of not nothing, but so insignificant compared to God. Is that why you said that the top and the bottom will drop compared to the ocean? Right, exactly. It puts everything into perspective. How small our whole frame of references, from the greatest, the most mind-boggling, higher level of consciousness, the most mind-blowing human experience, the deepest conceptual understanding, the most profound, the most angelic, heavenly, sublime grasp of reality. The king of the hill. And your beer hands and your actions compared to the higher levels, it's all the same. It's all, it's all, it's all insignificant. Because we, we, our whole grasp of reality is taking the drop from the ocean, out of the ocean. And you dissect it and you categorize it and you end up with a, with a t- hierarchy and different levels. But is that a real reflection of reality? Could you really separate the drop of the ocean from the ocean? As the modern physicist understands, our, our whole description of reality is, is a relative description. Reality is infinite. The human mind is simply too paltry, too impoverished. Human language, human mind, human concepts are just too impoverished to describe reality. How do you explain quantum mechanics? How do you explain the paradoxical uh, description of reality on the electromagnetic level of radiation? Where particles, waves at the same time. It, it doesn't make any sense. But the human, our human description of reality is, is only relative. It's just a human description of one tiny slice of reality where inherently inadequate. We can't grasp, we can't wrap our mind around reality. That's why the, modern, the true modern physicist has a healthy humility and a healthy respect for the vastness and the infinite reality of the universe. So th- this is really a very humbling perspective. Put everything into perspective. And you think you're going to grasp God with your philosophy and with your meditation, with your higher levels of consciousness? It's, it doesn't touch God. It doesn't, just like you can't grab God with your hands, you can't wrap your mind around God either. That's not the way you approach God. You approach God with humility. You approach God with faith. You approach God through Torah, through mitzvot. That's the way you approach God. But to get back to what uh, Yaakov was saying, you can detach water from its source. You can bottle the water and remove it. I don't need the ocean to have the water. With electricity, it doesn't work that way. With light, it doesn't work that way. You can't... The light is not a separate entity. The light points to its source. You look at the light, you see its source. When I see a bottle of water, I don't know where this water comes from. I, I don't know where this water came from. I don't know the reservoir. I don't know the ocean, the river. It doesn't point to its source. When you look at light, it points to its source. Light is, doesn't proclaim to be a separate entity. Light proclaims, look, I, I am just a reflection of the star that I came from. I am nothing, I am just here like a messenger from the star. I'm just here a reflection of the star. I am nothing without the star. So, you know, we're, that's just a technical detail because, because it takes time to travel. So by the time the light gets here, that's a technicality. 
But the idea of light, light is not a separate entity. Light does not proclaim its own being. Light's whole raison d'etre, light's whole being is to point at source. You look at light, you see its source. There's nothing but the source. Don't look at me, look at my source. While you look at everything else in the world, you don't see its source. I see a, a, a fruit. Does the fruit scream out its source? No. When it's attached, yes, but I can disattach it. I can disconnect it. You can't disattach light, electricity from its source. It ceases to exist. It, it's, not a, it's not an independent entity. Its entire being is just to exp- reveal its source. And that's why it reflects its source. Whatever the star is about, that's what the light is about. The star is, is, is a massive sun, so the light also is energy. The light is a reflection of its source. Because it's nothing other than its source. It's totally dependent on the source. It has no independent being other than its source. It doesn't proclaim to have any independent being other than its source. Therefore, it's, a, it's, a, it's an accurate reflection of its source. It's only a reflection. It's not the substance of the source. And that's why it's a light. It's not a, an originator, it's just a dependent being. And in comparison to its source, it's nothing insignificant. To the source, it doesn't matter if there is light, there is no light. It doesn't add to the source, it doesn't detract from the source. It doesn't matter if, if, if it's a cloudy day, it's not a cloudy day. If it is shining, it's not shining. It's water off the back. To the sun, it makes no difference. It, it doesn't add anything to the sun, it doesn't detract, it doesn't take away from the sun. Water, when you take water out of the reservoir, you're taking a little of water out of the reservoir. The, the reservoir drops. But when the sun gives off light, it's not like the sun is losing anything. The sun is, gave a piece of itself. It's insignificant to the sun. So light has, has a paradoxical reality, quality to it. On one hand, it's a, it's a genuine reflection of its source. On the other hand, it's insignificant to its source. It makes no difference to the source doesn't add anything, doesn't take away anything. It's not, the source is not affected by the light. Whether there is light, there isn't light, doesn't affect the source one way or the other. Unlike when you take water from the reservoir, yes, the reservoir is affected. I took away water from the reservoir. The reservoir is made up of a whole bunch of drops of water and I took away some. When you withdraw $100 from Bill Gates' bank account, okay, it's a drop in the ocean, but ultimately it's made up of a lot of $100. So I've... <laughs> have drawn down the bank account. But light, it's not like drawing down the bank account. It's not like the sun has given up something of itself, has given a piece of itself. The sun hasn't given anything of itself. It's not like I've given you a piece of my finger. It's nothing. It doesn't mean anything. But it's a reflection. Unlike water, water, water you can disconnect from its source. But light is not an independent entity. Its entire entity is just a reflection of its source. So that's the analogy, that's the metaphor, where the Kabbalists use the metaphor, the metaphor of light. Okay, page 962, precisely in this matter. Precisely in this manner, and even more so, is the unity of, on the one hand, the attributes of the Holy One, blessed be He, and His will and wisdom in the world of absolute, with, on the other hand, His essence and being, as it were, who becomes clothed in them, in the sephirot of absolute, and unites with them in perfect unity. Since they derived and emanated from him, just as, by way of analogy, light is diffused from the sun. However, Hashem's unity with his attributes is not exactly in this manner, i.e., like the fusion of the sun with the light, which is still within it. 
but in a manner which is remote and concealed from our comprehension, for his ways are higher than our ways. Nevertheless, despite its superior manner of unity, since one must modulate to the ear what it is able to hear, we can perceive and comprehend that just as in the analogy, the light of the sun which is united with and nullified in its source has no name of its own, only the name of its source. So too all the attributes of the Holy One, blessed be he, and his will and wisdom are not designated and called by these names at all relative to him, but only in relation to the creatures which are, note of the Rebbe Shlita, below the world of Atzalut, i.e. in Berea, Yitzira, and Asiya, these creatures being both higher and lower, which are brought into, an, into existence and given life and guided in their conduct by the Holy One, blessed be he through his will and wisdom and understanding and knowledge which garb themselves in his holy emotive attributes such as chesed, gavura, and tiferet. Thus the sefirot are termed kochma bina dat, chesed, and so forth in relation to the beings which are created and vivified by Hashem through his will and wisdom and so forth which clothe themselves in the emotive attributes. It's only when Hashem creates the world with the ten spirits, ten divine emanations, that we can call them by their name. And he conducts the world through the ten spirits with his will and his wisdom and his emotional attributes. It's only then that we can call the spirit by, by the name. So it's only relative to us that we can give them a name. But relative to Hashem, we can't even call them, call them by their name. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why we praise God in the prayers. We praise God. You're loving, you're kind, you're wise. Why does constant praise? God needs our praise. Constant praising. What's the point? What's the purpose? And the analogy is that imagine a person who is very kind, but he happens to be very angry about something or he's just in a very angry at you, or just in a very bad mood, or you caught him at the wrong time. How are you going to evoke his nature of kindness? By praising him. You start praising him, how wonderfully kind he is. That will evoke from, from the, his innermost heart, from his innermost being, that will evoke that innate attribute of kindness the person has and that will stir his kindness and that will bring about the desired result so too so to speak God is so remote and so removed from all of these attributes God you can't associate God with wisdom and love and kindness God is so beyond any of these attributes the attributes are insignificant in comparison to God but yet we want God to um, conduct His world in a kind way, in a loving way, to respond to us lovingly and kindly. So, by praising God, we evoke and we, so to speak, direct Hashem to reveal Himself or to emanate from Himself these attributes. So it's by way of praise you know, in a certain sense, we are in the driver's seat. 
Because it's only when we act kindly that we in turn evoke from Hashem that Hashem will also react to us kindly, measure for measure. Hashem acts to us the way we act to others. If we act kindly, if we smile, Hashem smiles at us. If we're, the, we're sour, Hashem is sour to us. If we're joyous, Hashem is joyous to us. The way we behave, we, in a certain sense, direct and get Hashem to um, concentrate His infinite self in a very concentrated form, to emanate from Himself, to evoke from Himself these attributes so that His divine flow could manifest itself in our world in a tangible way, in a way that's tangibly good for us. I have a very personal take on that aspect of praising God for totally different reasons. It's almost as though in order to have a true relationship with Hashem, you have to do that. Because when you really think about it, what Hashem does all the time, it would be a lie if we related to Him any other way. It would be truly a lie. Someone is doing all these myriad things at every moment. It's so astounding that to speak truth, because when we dive and we're actually speaking with God back and forth and back and forth, one-on-one, and we're talking to Him. And it's not just like words that mean nothing. We're actually having a conversation, if you will. If you look at what He does, there's no other really way to communicate. Otherwise, it's just a lie. But what he's saying here is, is, is taking it a step further. Not only are we on the receiving end of Hashem's kindness, but it's through our prayers that we actually, so to speak, get Hashem to concentrate and to focus and to, and to reveal Himself into, and to manifest Himself in these loving, kind ways. Because Hashem Himself is way beyond all this. It's so beyond all, it's, it's like... Words don't even cut it. Yeah, it's like, it's like, it's like you know, to, to get him to concentrate on something that's so insignificant. Uh, what, what are you talking about? Where's that drop in the ocean? Well, what, I don't even see it. What are you talking about? The whole universe, the whole... It's so insignificant. The king of the hill is, is, is nothing to Hashem. It's, it's equal to the bottom of the hill. It means nothing, nothing. So it's through our prayer... It's through Jewish prayer that we actually sustain the whole world. because it's, and, th- and that's why the rabbis of the Great Assembly, the words they used, the words they chose, we actually channel the, the, the infinite, the divine energy, channel Hashem to manifest Himself in these attributes, emotional attributes and these intellectual attributes, through the ten attributes, divine attributes. So it's our praise that actually almost you know, almost creates or brings Hashem to emanate all of these attributes. And therefore, when we praise Hashem and we um, bring Hashem to reveal Himself and to concentrate Himself and to manifest Himself through these attributes, uh, we also benefit in the receiving end that we receive all these blessings on the receiving end because we were the ones who actually um, brought Hashem to concentrate on the world and to focus on the world and to and to, to focus and to reveal himself through these attributes. So Hashem's intense love is, becomes manifest, and Hashem's intense caring and Hashem's intense awareness become manifest. And when they become manifest, then it leads to blessing and the divine flow 
um, flows directly to, to us and through us to the, to the entire world. And the world becomes a blessed place. So prayer is a very powerful thing. The whole universe depends on our prayer. It's not just, it's not just a very individual thing, a way of expressing our genuine appreciation for what Hashem is doing. We become partners. We are Hashem's partners in creation. We sustain creation. It's our prayers that sustain the world. It's our prayer. We are partners in this whole drama. Hashem needs us. Hashem depends on us. Hashem wants us. It's, the only reason He's doing it is for us. The only reason He's manifesting Himself is for us. As, as the analogy we discussed the other week, you weren't here that week, that the Magad of Mizrich gives, Rabbi Dov Ber, it's like, a, like a, a parent wants to play with his baby. Einstein wants to play with his baby. How's Einstein going to play with his baby? You know, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna bore him to death. He's going to start talking about E equals MC. What's he going to... So he starts, he starts playing. He starts playing. He gets on all four and starts ooing and eyeing and starts uh, playing, playing like a baby. And the baby is having a grand time. So here you have Einstein communicating with his baby. Einstein is Einstein and Einstein remains Einstein. He's communicating with his baby. They're talking to each other. They're speaking the same language. So Hashem, out of his infinite love for us, is speaking baby talk. Wisdom is baby talk. Knowledge is baby talk. Love is baby talk. Emotions, philosophy, religion, spirituality, to God, this is baby talk. This is, this is insignificant, it's irrelevant, it's meaningless, it's inherently meaningless. But because of his love for us, he wants to have a relationship with us. So he wants to talk our language. That's the only language we can talk. Because we don't know any other language. That's our whole human experience. Our whole human experience, this is our human experience. That's what we're composed of. Emotion, that's our whole universe. Emotions, knowledge, intellect, awareness, spirituality, meditation, intuition. That's our whole known universe. Hashem wants, wants us to be able to relate to Him. So out of His infinite love for us, He concentrates Himself and He reveals Himself and manifests Himself through these divine attributes. But it's only for us and only because of us. So it's our prayer that evokes our praise. When we praise Hashem, a Jew sits and prays Hashem, out of Hashem's love for us, He concentrates Himself and he focuses. And if the, if the whole world knew the power of Jewish prayer, they will be building Jewish synagogues all over the world. Because it's that prayer that sustains the whole universe and sustains the whole world. As it's stated in, in the Midrash, middle of 964. As it's stated in the Midrash, by means of ten things was the world created. By wisdom, by understanding, and by knowledge. So he doesn't quote the Mishnah, which says that God created the world with ten utterances. Because that's ten utterances. Here he wants to bring out from the verse, from the Pasuk, that Hashem actually creates the world with the ten attributes themselves. The ten attributes are the tools, are the very substance of creation. It's Hashem creates the world with wisdom. Wisdom is like his tool. And then everything in the universe, you have wisdom, which is physically reflected by oil. Oil is, is a metaphor for wisdom. That's why you can squeeze oil out of everything, anything. Out of a stone, out of... Oil is found in anything and everything because you have wisdom in everything. There is wisdom in everything. Everything has wisdom to it, tremendous wisdom. Science is only discovering the tip of the iceberg, the amount of wisdom that's in everything. Everything that exists in the universe has so much wisdom to it. But that's the substance with which God creates the world. With wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, with love. These are the tools with which God creates the whole universe. As it is written, continue. As it is written, God founded the earth with wisdom. He established the heavens with understanding. 
with his knowledge the depths of the abyss were burst open. And as expressed by Elijah, in the passage that opens with Patak Eliyahu, and it forms part of the introduction to, to Kunai Zohar, you have brought forth ten Takunim garments, and we call them ten spheros, through which to direct hidden worlds unrevealed, i.e. worlds that transcend moral comprehension, and worlds revealed, i.e. Okay. worlds that are accessible to moral comprehension, to mortals. Okay, in the, in the, in the Tikkune Zohar, portion of the Zohar, there's a passage from Elijah the prophet, which we recite Friday before Mincha, and in it you have the entire Kabbalah concentrated in this very cryptic, very short passage from Elijah the prophet. And there he writes that Hashem, you have brought forth ten tikkunim, ten garments. He refers to the Svirot as garments. What type of garments are we referring to here? There's different types of garments. There's external garments that you take on, you put on, you take off, which are really external to the person. They're not really part of a person. But then you have garments that are actually tikkunim. They actually beautify a person. They're part of a person. They reflect something more personal of the person. Clothes can be very external, superficial, but clothes can also reflect your person, your personality. Especially tikkunim may more properly refer to, for example, jewelry. Jewelry is also something external you put on, you take on, you take off, but it's not so external. Jewelry is something that reflects the person. It beautifies the person. It's part of you. It becomes part of you. There are the spiritual equivalents of garments within a person. For example, thought and speech. Thought is a garment in comparison to the personality. That's why you can change thoughts. I can think 2 plus 2 is 4. I can also think 2 plus 2 is 5. But you can't understand 2 plus 2 is 5. Because that's genuine, that's understanding, that's part of your personality. You can't, 2 plus 2 is 4, you can't understand 2 plus 2 is 5. It's not external, it's something more internal. It's like part of you. It's like your finger. You can't add a finger, but I can change clothes, I can put on clothes. You, you can't take off your hand and put, put your hand back on. When something has become part of you, it's not something you just take on and take off. An emotion, a feeling, is very hard to change because it becomes part of your personality, it's part of your being. You love someone, it's hard to change that feeling, or vice versa. Um, when you understand something, you'll never, you can never understand otherwise. Once you understand 2 plus 2 is 4, you can never understand differently. It becomes part of you. I can say 2 plus 2 is 5, if I'm indoctrinated enough, <laughs> if I have enough propaganda pumped into me, or I'm forced to, I'll say 2 plus 2 is 5. I can think 2 plus 2 is 5. So it's like a garment. A garment, you can change garments. You can put on a garment, you can take off a garment. Personality is much harder. You can't just take off personality and <laughs> put it on and take it off. It's part of you. It is who you are. It, it's, it's, it's something more internal, something more real. While thought 
and speech is external. An action is a garment. It's an expression. I can take it on and take it off. But on the other hand, it's also still part of you. Your thought is part of you. It's part of your soul. Your soul is thinking. Your soul is speaking. So it's, it's, in a, it's self-expression. So it's a garment, but it's a garment that's, that's part of you. So it refers to the svirot as tikkunim. That on one hand, the svirot are external to God. As we explained earlier, that the God, even the highest level, wisdom, which is the highest level of the whole entire hierarchy of our known universe, creativity, intuition, spirituality, to God, wisdom and action is all the same. Insignificant, irrelevant, they're all on the same level. It's like the king of the hill, the king of the, of the drop and the bottom of the drop. It's all the same. To the ocean, it's all the same. The shriek and the audible sound in comparison to the billions of sound waves is all the same. So to God, it's external. It's like clothes. It's like garments. You take on, you take on. But nevertheless, they are God's garments. They are like the thought of the soul. It's your thought. It emanates from you. So they are part of you. They flow from you. It's not something external. It's a garment. It's external to God. It's superficial to God. But on the other hand, it's God's garment. They emanate from God. <coughs> and they are tikkunim. They are tikkunim, just like jewelry or certain clothes that actually metaken. They, 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 they fix the person. They make the person, it becomes part of your internal, an expression of something internal. So too, the ten svirot are an expression of God. They're God's divine emanations. They are expressions of God. It's God's love. It's God's wisdom. It's God's awareness. And therefore, God conducts His worlds through these ten svirot. He directs the hidden worlds, as well as the revealed worlds. Because within garments itself, you have two levels. You have thought and speech. Thought is hidden. Thought is to yourself. Thought is when you speak to yourself. Revealed is speech. Speech is the purpose of speech is to reveal, to communicate to others. You don't have to speak to yourself. You think to yourself. You speak to yourself through thought. How do you speak to others? To reveal to others, that's, that's what speech, that's the level of speech. So too, you have two different types of garments, two different types of expressions. You have God's expression of thought, so to speak. It's more internal, which creates the inner worlds, the hidden worlds, the mystical worlds, the heavenly worlds, the spiritual worlds. And then you have the external worlds. So in God's speech, God reveals and creates the external world. And the analogy is like a difference between two different types of creatures. You have fish and you have mammals. Fish are swallowed up within the source. You look at the ocean, you don't see. All you see is water. You don't see the hidden life. The ocean is teeming with life. Because the, the creatures of the ocean, of the sea, are swallowed up within the source. They're inseparable from their source. They can't leave the, the moment they leave the water, they're dead. So they're hidden, they're submerged, they're swallowed up within their source. They're connected to their source. Just like thought, thought is connected to its source. That's why a person can't stop thinking. Just like your soul doesn't stop. You can't stop thinking. Speech, however, is external. Speech, at least some people could stop speaking. 
Because speech is external. The soul is constant. It doesn't mean I have to speak constantly. But thought is constant. You can't stop thinking. Just like the fish are in the water, the fish are inseparable from the source. They're swallowed up within the source. So you have an, exter- you have an internal garment, which is closer to the source. And you have an external garment, which is more external. And with, through these garments, God expresses Himself and God creates the different types of worlds. You have the worlds of the angels, of the souls, and the angels, which are swallowed up within the source. They sense their source. They sense their divine source. They're inseparable from their divine source. They know, they're aware, they're conscious of their constant connection to God. They're like light that's constantly connected to its source. Thought is constantly connected to its source. While the creatures, the the mammals, this external world, the physical world, the material world, the created world, that's the world which is external. We don't connect, we don't sense our source. You look at a tree, you don't see its source. You don't see its divine source. You look at an animal, you don't see its divine source. You You look at yourself, you feel that you're alive, but you don't feel that it's a divine you don't feel that life is divine. Life is a miracle. An astounding, astonishing, ongoing miracle. You don't sense that. Because we're disconnected. We're external. Like the mammals that are disconnected from the source of life. You don't see, you don't sense their source of life. They're not swallowed up in the source of life. Mammals depend on the earth, on the ground, on the grass, and vegetation. But they're not swallowed up within the source. They're independent. They roam independently. So too, we roam, we live life independently. We don't sense our connection to Hashem. We don't sense our connection to our source, our divine source. Because we're created through God's speech, which creates an external world, a world that's outside of God, that senses itself as outside of God. While through God's thought, God creates an internal world, a world that's connected to God, a world that senses its source, that's swallowed up in its source, that's absorbed in its source, absorbed and attached and connected. The veikut, constant the veikut, constant absorption, constant connection to its source. And then God created the ego world, which is our world, the materialistic world. We are independent. We sense our independence. We don't sense the truth that we are genuinely swallowed up in our source, that we are absorbed in our source. We don't, we, we're not absorbed with godliness. We're not, it's, it's, it's a struggle for us. We don't sense it. We don't because we're disconnected. We're like the mammals. Because we're created, we're the result of, of God's speech. So, through these two garments, the inner garments and the outer garments, thought and speech, God creates the hidden worlds, the unrevealed worlds, the spiritual worlds, the spiritual realms, and the worlds that are revealed, which is the ego world that we inhabit. But all of this is done through the ten sphirot, through the ten divine attributes. The third paragraph, 965, and through them. And through them you conceal yourself from created beings that they will not be able to perceive the divine life force that creates and vivifies them. So through, through the ten sphirot, God hides himself that we do not perceive the divine life force. We do perceive our life force. You look at a tree, you see life. You look at an animal, you see life, you sense your own life. 
but you don't sense the divine ingredient. The truth is that it is divine. If we were living in a sane world, they would be building stadiums around maternity wards. People would go to watch a witness the miracle of life. After a hard day's work, people wanted to calm down. People wanted to be astonished, entertained, or to be blown away. They would go see the miracle of life instead of watching people hitting wood and balls with wood. But that's the concealment. God conceals himself. We don't sense the divine. We don't sense the divine miracle of life. All the scientists in the world can't create the life of a fly. Life is a miracle. Life comes from within. Life is not a building block. Life is not an external event that you build, you put blocks together. It's like a machine. All the machines in the world, all the machinery and the mechanics in the world can't create life. Even one iota of life. Life is a miracle, divine miracle that comes from within. We can't explain it. It's inexplicable. It's a miracle. It's divine. But we don't sense it. We're totally disconnected. You look at a tree, you see life. You don't see divine. You don't see the author. You don't see the divine author. And it reached such a level. The disconnect is so pronounced that it's considered a a revolution in American society to acknowledge that there is an intelligent design to creation. (laughs) If you think about it, the original philosophers, Aristotle and Plato, at least had innate intelligence, genuine intelligence, real intelligence. You can hardly accuse the intellectuals today of the same. I mean, if you think about it for three seconds, how could anyone, if someone told you that Shakespeare was written by a monkey that sat at a typewriter, you would be insulted. Shakespeare. If someone told you that the Empire State Building just evolved, the bricks got together, evolved. Absurd. You think the Empire State Building is complex? The Empire State Building is nothing. It doesn't even come close to the complexity of the human body. There are billions of atoms in the human body. If one atom took a left turn, the whole thing would fall apart. The scientists can't even find anything, actually. If you look in the atom, they can't find anything. It's 99.9.9.9% empty. So that, that this whole existence exists, intelligent design, it's a miracle. Any five-year-old child can understand it. If there's a book, there's an author. If there's a business, if you're working for Fox or for CNN, there's someone to build a business. You think it just evolved, just happened? There's an intelligent person to put it all together. Anything in the world has a source, a reason. And yet today, with what we know of the complexities of the human body, people spend their whole lifetime just studying one organ in the body and haven't even scratched the surface of the ear. The body is, a, is so complex. The mind, the human mind, is more complex than all, one single human mind, is more complex than the whole known galaxy put together. Galaxies, billions and trillions of stars. And all of this just happened, evolved. And that's considered a revolutionary statement to say that there's an intelligence. And it's illegal to teach that in America. This is, there's no innate intelligence here. If a person had innate intelligence, how can, you, how can you say that there's no cause? That there's no design? And yet this is considered a revolutionary, a revolutionary statement because the disconnect is so pronounced. The disconnect from the divine, the disconnect from reality. Forget about the disconnect from the divine. Disconnect from reality, from common sense. We have to sit and argue with people? The absurdity of the expulsion? 
Any five-year-old child can tell you how, how, how ridiculous, absurd the whole thing is. But there's no innate intelligence. It's just a bunch of pseudo-intellectuals. But this is what happens when you're disconnected from the divine. Ultimately, you become disconnected from common sense. That any five-year-old child instinctively knows, innately knows. A person who wants to be honest. The bottom line of everything is there are no real, very few real atheists. What is the fuel behind all this atheism? It's just a justification, a rationalization for a lifestyle, for a hedonistic, animalistic, pagan lifestyle. There's no right, there's no wrong, just live as you please. And a person has to have an excuse. As, someone, as a great rabbi once said, said, when a person sins once, he feels guilty. Sins twice, he, feels, he doesn't feel so guilty. He sins three times, he turns it into a mitzvah. He creates a whole philosophy behind it. To justify it, to rationalize it, to explain it. Because it's really, it's all, it's really just a justification for a lifestyle of, also, an absurd lifestyle. A lifestyle that's illogical, irrational, that, that goes contrary to the whole, to common sense, goes contrary to, to the most basic ideas of self-preservation, of continuing the species for the next generation. And um, so all of this pseudo-atheism is really just a poor excuse to rationalize and to cover up and to explain a lifestyle where you don't have to answer for anything you don't have to um, you know you don't have to take responsibility for anything I mean, there is there is significant evidence to back up the argument that, that, that over time certain things evolve for instance human beings who live in Jewish people who live in Germany tend to be tend to grow up tend to be very light skinned pale skinned Jews who lived in Yemen tend to be very dark skinned there wasn't much intermarriage going on with either but not Germany let's say Ukraine. There wasn't much intermarriage going on with either group, but the people look significantly different. Is it not possible that they evolved based on the climate and the society with which they live and certain weather so, patterns? So all that proves is that a person is affected by the environment he lives in. But what, the, but, but, what, but what does that have to do with evolution? The second, the second part of that is that there's a gradual evolution within people based on the, the things gradually do evolve. Really, we have 248 limbs today. We had 248 limbs 6,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago. Five, 6,000 years from now, we'll still have 248 limbs. We're not going to grow two noses. You know, <laughs> no, as a way to explain, you know what it is? It was a way to substitute creation. It was a way to substitute creation. Science, because if science accepts creation... It means there's a God in this world. There's a God in this world. I have to act, I have to act like a mensch. But there are many people who support evolution. Yeah, but again, I, you know, uh, you know we're, we're, what's the assumption behind it? Scientists, scientists has to come up with a substitute for creation because creation means I accept there's a God in the world. That means that there's certain implications to that. Um, I would say that evolution is comes from a 19th century materialistic, outdated, uh, outdated scientific model, a Newtonian model, where the world was looked at as just a bunch of building blocks, a very <coughs> mechanical model. It's totally out of date with the modern physics, with uh, relativity and quantum mechanics and all the breakthroughs in modern physics, which is much more a deeper and spiritual understanding of reality. Um, the physical is just a manifestation of the spiritual um, and 
you know, if you're just looking at it me mechanistically and mechanically and evolution without taking into account, taking into account the bigger picture, the soul, the spiritual, and the and it's it's just it's just totally inadequate and it's it's absurd and it's absurd it's absurd it's absurd I mean that that creative intelligence is is is, is even a question is it's just it's just foolish I I don't respect their intelligence there's no intelligence but their argument isn't necessarily to underpin God created the world their argument amongst the more progressive people who are not atheists is that there is evolution and the world wasn't created 5,700 years ago. They'll say it was created a couple million years ago, and there's been a gradual process of evolution that God kicked off. Let's say, there are modern Orthodox rabbis who say that this is... This yes, is, this but it's, called, it's apologetics Judaism, because we're trying to reconcile things that are really not in contradiction. They're accepting a whole premise that's inherently flawed. They're accepting a whole premise, a very mechanistic viewpoint of the universe, which is so outdated, it's, so, it's such a dinosaur, it's not even funny. So we're arguing a, a, a whole assumption that's based on a whole understanding of reality that's so outdated. It was outdated 100 years ago. With each passing day, it's becoming more and more outdated. The, our understanding today of reality, of, of, of what reality really is, re reality is 99.9%, you can't even find any. So the whole universe as we know it is not, it's really, it's just, it's just a miracle. And it's only here for a reason and for a purpose. And when that purpose is, is fulfilled, then our reality has a real reality, inherent reality. And when not, then our reality is really, really, really insignificant and meaningless and irrelevant. You know, it's, it's, the Torah is truth. The Torah is a total, all-encompassing reality. We don't have to twist the Torah into a pretzel to accommodate the Torah to an understanding, a scientific understanding, which is not science. It's pure speculation. It's pure theory. It's pure speculation. Based on a very, very limited, and it's besides the fact that it's riddled with holes. Even then it was riddled with holes. From day one. This is before Einstein and before, before quantum mechanics and before our, our, genu our whole understanding of reality today. But just the idea that intelligent design is a question that tells you that there's no innate intelligence. Aristotle was a smart man. And he believed in the first cause. How can you not believe in the first cause? Any, any common sense, any five-year-old child will tell you there's a first cause. A book has an author. This complicated body just evolved? Who are you kidding me? The mathematical chances of life existing in this world, of the body being put together the way it is, of life being able to sustain life, with not a single planet in the universe you can find life, only in this planet is mathematically impossible. Just mathematically, scientifically. So all of this just happened randomly. A person who doesn't acknowledge that this is an astounding miracle, a divine miracle. Life is nothing short of the most... Logically, to understand logically, this is an astounding miracle. Logically, it makes no sense. I'm asking something far more basic. For anyone to believe that a Big Bang and the world just happened. <laughs> Life, people, everything... When, when if someone told you that a book was written by a monkey that sat at a typewriter, you wouldn't believe that. That the Empire State Building just evolved, you wouldn't believe that. But they're ready to believe that this complex human being, the body, yeah. and this complex world, which is mathematically impossible to sustain life, the chances of all of this happening being so perfect, that you to believe that all of this just happened, it really puts into question the innate intelligence of these people. They're becoming monkeys, not one
No, because any, any five-year-old child will tell you. How could there not be a cause? There's, there's an effect, there's a cause. It's so logical, it's so common sense. A person who's clear, a person who has no axe to grind. The real motivation behind all of this atheism, it's an excuse and a rationalization to dethrone the Torah, to dethrone God. If God is not... It's emotional. It's an emotional, subconsciously, subconsciously. Subconsciously, it's in order to create a justification to live the type of life you want to live. I don't know if it's as, I think it's more that there's a lot of questions that don't seem unanswerable based on 20th century Western thinking, and people come to the conclusion that, you know, maybe there is no God, and that's why we can't answer the question. Einstein was a big believer in God. I'm sure. I, I propose people with innate intelligence, Aristotle believed in God. People with innate intelligence, real intelligence, how could you not believe in the first course? I'm not talking about the Jewish faith, which is way beyond the philosophical but faith, the philosophical understanding. Okay. It's a justification to throw off the yoke of Torah. It's a justification to justify a certain lifestyle. I would recommend to you a book written by Paul Johnson called Intellectuals. No, Intellectuals. We write brilliant book that some of the greatest intellectuals and atheists, like Jacques Rousseau, who was disdainful and, you know, he wrote a whole uh, satire about believers, um, how corrupt they were in their personal lives. They were rotten human beings. Wife abusers, child abusers. They were degenerates. They were cruel. They were, they were just horrible people. People, if you look deeper, you will find most atheism. There's very few genuine atheists. Someone once came to the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe and said, I'm an atheist. He said, did you study Talmud? He says, no, I never studied Talmud. He said, did you study Maimonides? No, I never looked at Maimonides. Did you study the Bible? He says, not really. He says, my friend, you're not an atheist, you're an ignoramus. (laughs) 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 To to be an an atheist, you have to be really a real smart, learned person, a real, 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 real scholar. I went to to school that was run by the Arbitrary. Started by Arbitrary. I mean, I knew kids whose grandparents were, were very culturally Jewish, but were proud atheists. No one was on the door, and this is nonsense, and they stole our house, and we survived the Holocaust, and nobody, you know, they, they were, this was what they thought. And I don't know if it came from this desire to live a perverse lifestyle. Well, the children are kidnapped, the children are victims. Children, it's not their fault. I'm talking about where it originated. Where it originated in the 19th century, it was throwing off of the yoke, throwing off the yoke of God, throwing off the yoke of heaven, just being, justifying a libertarian lifestyle, a lifestyle without restraints. It comes from is because it's to dethrone the Bible. People used to take the Bible, used to live with the Bible. Lincoln walked around with a Bible, a tattered Bible in his pocket. Right. In America, people used to say grace after the meal. The Bible was, was the book that united the whole country. People took God seriously. The whole country was founded on the Puritans who were looking for religious freedoms. Uh, Hebrew was almost the official language. Yale had Hebrew inscriptions. Um, the, the whole enlightenment was a way to throw off the yoke of heaven and to dethrone God. And it was an emotional rationalization explanation to justify a lifestyle. 90% of atheism, if not higher, if you look deeper, that's where it comes from. Because to acknowledge that there is an intelligence design means to acknowledge that there's a God, that there's right and there's wrong. There's a purpose, and there's a reason, and there's a rhyme to life.
And you have to live a life that, that's meaningful, that's reasonable, that's meaningful. I'm not even talking about the Jewish faith. I'm talking about even logical and rational, sensible lifestyle, a rational lifestyle. Lessons in Tanya, taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. For more Tanya study, please visit our website at www.lessonsintanya.com.